Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Windham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Windham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They've been providing shelter for 20 years to stop homeless people dying in the freezing cold. At last, they have a permanent home themselves, and we talk with the Wyndham Region No Freeze Project about it. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Homelessness can affect anyone at any time, and even if you're working and earning a relatively good wage, you could still find yourself unable to pay to keep a roof over yours and your family's heads. The homelessness situation is not confined to just Connecticut, and is a nationwide problem that seems as difficult to tackle as the war on drugs is. But there are non-profits out there providing assistance to those in need, and since 2003, the Wyndham Region No Freeze Project has provided temporary shelter to more than 2,600 men and women in the greater Wyndham area, giving them a warm and safe place to stay and potentially saving their lives from dying of cold on the streets. And now after 20 years of service to the community and having moved several times themselves within the city due to conflicts with city officials, the nonprofit has a permanent home and is looking to expand what it does for those in need. We're talking with Avery Lenhart, Executive Director of the Wyndham Region No Freeze Project. Avery, it's good to see you again back on the podcast. I think it's probably over about a year since we last spoke to you. Yes, I think so. Thank you for having me back. Not at all. There's good news and bad news. We're going to be slightly going through it. Let's start with the good news. Last time we spoke to you, you were elsewhere in the town of Willimantic. Finally, you now have what appears to be a permanent home. Tell us about it, because we're sat here in the locker room. It's a big old place. It's going to need some renovation, but talk to us about where it is and what's going to happen. Well, yes, we're so excited to be here. So we are finally in planning and zoning zone that the town would like us to be in, which is great. And it's just eased tensions immensely between us and and the municipal leaders. So we were able to purchase this building and then we're very, very grateful to the Foster Family Foundation because they actually gifted us the money to be able to own this building outright. So we have no mortgage. That's just a wonderful blessing. We're very excited about that. And then we are planning to renovate it. We are working with the State Department of Housing with a called the CDBG COVID grant that will help us transform this place into a beautiful space. We are going to have what's called micro units, which will be double occupancy rooms, each with a bathroom and storage space for our guests. This is a really important thing. And it took a lot of kind of soul searching and heart searching about how we wanted this space to be. And We want people to come here and feel safe. And so this not only gives them safety from COVID, but also gives 
some safety from being in a big room with strangers that's that's a little bit scary when you're already going through a very difficult time in your life. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's just talk a little <laughs> bit more about this this great building. It's at 433 Valley Street in Willimantic, literally just up the road from Wyndham Hospital and Generations as well. So, right. I mean, lots of like healthcare systems surrounding you. Tell us a little bit more about the building because, like I said, it's a big old beast of a building. Lots of things. It's a little bit like a rabbit warren. You've got lots of space that sort of you didn't probably really have before in some of the other places or, you know, like you said, it was more open plan. So what was the building before? So the building before was just was part of a plaza, a shopping plaza. And that space that we had was 2000 square feet of wide open space with bathrooms and showers and lockers in that same space and offices kind of carved out of the corners of that space. What we have now is an office building. So we have two long corridors, one upstairs and one downstairs, and those corridors have offices running right along them. So the space downstairs, which is where the shelter exists right now, took the doors off the rooms and we put six or eight beds in each room. And so there's a little bit more privacy. There's a little bit more distance from, you know, people uh, you're in a small, smaller room with a group of people. It's working pretty well because, for instance, women who are not excited about sleeping near men have a room for just women. We also have a room for couples because there are times when people come in and they want to be with their partner close to them because, again, they want to feel safe. So it's an important thing and it's pretty nice. One of the things you said, of course, and it's always great, is to have, I say, no mortgage hanging around your neck, right. especially for nonprofits. I mean, it's it's always been tough for nonprofits, but it seems like it's even harder these days. It is. Not paying rent and not paying mortgage is huge. That's a big deal. And also, as a nonprofit, when you own your own space, it establishes you in a different way in, in the eyes of, for instance, uh, grant funders and, and people who are looking to help you in a big way. When you own your own space, it, it kind of gives you cred, you know? <laughs> it's, it's really, it's a big deal. So we're excited about that, too. We're looking forward to doing some big renovations. We are in the process right now of purchasing the building next door. That will be part of the grant funding. So we also will not have a mortgage on that building. That's a smaller building. And ultimately, we're going to have a campus with this bigger building being used for shelter and some date services like hygiene services and things like that. And the building next door will be devoted to office space and daytime services such as a place. I want to have a resource room there where we have a place where people can come and use a computer, for instance, to look for housing or look for or get their food stamps problem fixed or apply for jobs, things like that, where there will be it will be supported by volunteers in the community who can come and sit with people and help them if they need it. We also are hoping to have some health care support from generations and the hospital regarding, you know, just having some clinical staff there a couple days a week who can be doing things like COVID vaccines or COVID checks checks, diabetes checks, things like that, little kind of day-to-day things that don't necessarily need the emergency room. What's this meant to you and the team ultimately? Like we said, you know, you've moved around over the years. You finally have this permanent base. You're getting another building. What does it mean to you? 
Well, the expansion is, it's a lot of work. You know, it's an expansion of our whole program and the way we see it and everything that we do. And it's a really big deal. So right now I'm in the middle of it and it's it's like, it feels like growing pains. But at the same time, we're all just like, my board and I are just so excited about the incredible changes that we're, we're seeing and how we can establish ourselves as, as a real true resource in the community, not just for shelter, but for all kinds of help for people who are experiencing poverty and housing instability. What can we do for them? And that's what we want to be. That's who we want to be. So this is a huge step in that direction, and we're very excited about it. Earlier this, actually it was late last year, sorry, because I remember covering a story with you, a grant of money was given, obviously, to the Wyndham Region No Freeze Project. Tell us about that, because it was quite a hefty amount of money. Senator Murphy, so earmark grant. Yeah, so that was that was also something that came as a total surprise. I had gotten an email saying, you can apply for this funding. And I looked at the, the terms and it said, you know, if you're under HUD and they're funding capital projects. So I said what the heck? <laughs> I'll apply. And so I did. And I had no idea. At that point, we didn't even know we were getting this building. And so my grant was sort of like, we might be getting a building. And if we do, we're going to need to renovate it. And then it asked how much we wanted. And I said, I have no idea how much it costs to renovate a building. So I said, how's $500,000? <laughs> and I put that in there. And then lo and behold, it's gotten funded. And I, I'm still blown away by that. Very excited. It's a lot of money, but of course, it doesn't go far these days, does it? And of course, there's a lot of work to right. do. So again, we were talking before the, the start of the interview, you've got a like capital projects or a capital project campaign that um, you know, you're putting together. Talk to us a little bit about that, because you know, you're in it obviously for the long haul, clearly, as you right. see, you're, you're getting the other building, but there is a lot of work to do. There is a lot, and it's going to cost a lot. And so our estimates right now, we're working with an architect who's just been just so wonderful. So they are helping us with determining the cost. Obviously, that's part of their job. And so we are using, we're getting grant funding from Department of Housing. We don't yet know exactly how much we're getting. That's going to cover part of it. We have this $500,000 from Senator Murphy's office, which I'm very excited about. And then we've applied for additional funding from the Community Investment Fund, but we won't hear about that until May. So in the meantime, and, and that's not necessarily going to happen. So in the meantime, we are working ourselves on uh, building a capital campaign where we will be just going to the community and asking for funding that will help us fill the gaps of whatever the, the grant funding we get doesn't cover in this operation. So it may end up being, if we are fully funded by grants, that's wonderful. We will use capital funding for the remainder of any capital funding for what we call FFEs, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And uh, number one on our list is a washer and dryer. <laughs> so right now we are schlepping our laundry twice a week to a laundromat. It's costly. It's very difficult. So I'm hoping that we can solve that problem first. <laughs> Another thing as well, of course, is in the middle of all of this, it's business as usual. You know, you, the core of what you do obviously has to continue while all of this other essential stuff is done. But you were saying again before we started doing the, the interview, and we'll just like preface this by saying that the day that we're actually recording this, it's 
tomorrow, Saturday, because we're recording yeah. on a Friday, Saturday it's supposed to be below zero with right. a wind chill that I believe when I was listening to the weather could take it down to something like minus 50. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it's going to be incredibly cold. People obviously need shelter. Talk to us about that because you were saying that because of COVID, because of so many other things, you've seen a huge uptick, which right. which is the bad news part of right. this. Yeah, so we are seeing an an uptick in the homeless population, more people in need, people who are even employed and working and not able to afford a rent right now. Uh, Rentals have skyrocketed and they're hard to find. So we are, in terms of this cold weather right now, we will be opening our doors for shelter at one o'clock this afternoon and staying open until Sunday morning. So we are, as a seasonal shelter, we're also just strictly a night shelter. We normally open our doors at 7.30 at night, close at 8.30 in the morning. But we have afternoon hours where people can come in and use our shower for hygiene services or meet with somebody in the office for housing support. So we're just going to stay open today from one o'clock until Sunday morning. So that that's interesting too, because that's a situation where it's increased staffing for us and every dollar is precious to us. So that's something that we have to do. The state has issued a cold weather order, which means they're asking us to stay open 24 hours, which of course we're more than willing to do and we're happy to do it, but they don't give us any funding to do that. So it's um, it's challenging for us. We try to put extra money for this kind of event in our staffing budget for the year just to make sure that, you know, we have this. But I'm really glad that we will be able to have it. We will, people will be able to stay in all day. It's just really nice for them that they don't have to run out the door at 830 in the morning and stand in the cold somewhere, or find some place warm to go. Like you said, I mean, it puts a bit of a strain on you as well. But at the end of the day, where else are they going to go? Right, exactly. But anybody can come here. If they find themselves outside, especially at night, they can come knock on our door and we will let them in. We may not have a bed for them, but they can at least come in and be in a warm space, have a bathroom and not be freezing in the cold. Can you give us a bit of a sense of of how much that increase has been? Because, you know, when we spoke to you, as I say, over a year ago, when you were in your other space, obviously COVID was at its height as well. And we're still dealing with COVID. I mean, we're seeing outbreaks here and there still. So that's still obviously a big issue for for you when you're like letting people in and for your staff as well. But, you know, can you give us a sense of, of you know, this need? Yeah. So in the 2021 shelter season, there was still a moratorium on evictions. And because of that, it was our lowest shelter year in many years. We only served 104 people in the course of six months. Typically, we serve anywhere from 100 and 50 to 185. Only 104 people that first season. And then last season, the moratorium ended halfway through the season or partway through. I can't remember exactly which month. But what happened was people started getting evicted. Um, People who had not made their rent, who had not been able to get support from Unite CT and that kind of thing when the moratorium was ending. So so they started coming to us. And so last year, we had a total number of 122 people. This year, based on our numbers, I think we are looking at, at a very large number this year because we were, for one thing, we were full in November. We're never full in November. November is still, of the winter months, it's still cons- pretty much milder. And a lot of people think that they can spend the winter outside in a tent. And then usually by the end of November, they start 
start to realize that that's really challenging. So they come to us at the end of November. And November, we were full. We had more than 50. And I haven't looked at our numbers yet for January, but we were getting up to close to 100 different people already. And we're midway through the season. So that tells me we're going to have a big number. The other thing is that we also have quite a few, we're seeing an uptick in elderly and disabled populations. And that's very concerning to me, especially for people who are older that have nowhere to go. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And so we advocate strongly for them at housing meetings. We actually prioritize anybody who's over 60 for housing and just try to get them somewhere safe and stable before the end of our season, which is the end of April. That's very concerning. You were talking as well, again, before we started recording the interview, we were having a little pre-chat and you were saying about the lack of housing affordable for everybody. Talk to us about that because it's not just in this area. Sadly, it's everywhere in Connecticut and everywhere in the United States. Yeah. So we have a thing called the FMR. The FMR is the fair market rate and and there is a fair market rate for every town and every community across the country. And so in, in our area, two years ago, the FMR was, I believe it was $834 a month for a single bedroom apartment. And now it's gone to, I think, 1134 So it's gone up significantly. And for somebody who's on a limited income or a fixed income, if you are, for instance, on Social Security disability, you're getting $840 a month. You couldn't afford the rent before, and you certainly are not going to be able to afford it now. So, which is putting a huge burden on housing programs like Section 8 or permanent supportive housing that will cover the cost minus 30% of the person's income of housing. There isn't enough of that kind of housing support. And it's very sad to me that somebody who's on Social Security disability doesn't earn enough to be able to afford an apartment because then they have no choice but to go to a housing program. But they may not have the severe need that somebody else would have for a supported housing program. So it would be really great if they could make more money, they could afford their own place. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, actually, that um, even though Connecticut, uh, I mean, we've got, I think it's what, about $15.50 an hour now, something like that. It's over $15, I think, is the minimum wage here in Connecticut. But I think someone, a report I was reading was saying that even with the minimum wage, if you're a single person and you and you earn that, you sort of really still can't afford to live in Connecticut because you're still not making enough money. Because as you said, by the time you've paid rent, we're looking at food prices at the moment just going through the roof. I mean... Mm-hmm. Simple things, basic things like eggs, eggs. Uh, eight and yeah. a half dollars uh, for a dozen eggs in some situations. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, as you say, these things are all becoming very challenging. And then, of course, people falling through the cracks, hoping that there's an organization like yours that can mm-hmm. in some way save them. Yeah. And I get it too. The landlords got the short end of the stick during COVID. I know that they also have expenses that mean that they have to raise their rents. I have no argument with that. It's just how do we how do we fill those unmet needs? And yes, everything is more costly. Uh, one of the things that we've seen over the past couple of years is uh, landlords are now no longer, for instance, including utilities in their rent. So when you when you are renting from them, even if you're on a subsidy, you're going to have to come up with the money for 
electricity, which is outrageous. And I know that I've looked at my own electric bill and been shocked. So there's a lot to consider. Uh, we're asking people to do things like consider shared housing situations. And I understand why somebody who's of a certain age no longer wants to do that, but it could be their only way out of homelessness. So we are looking at helping people with that kind of, to do that kind of flexibility, try to be a little bit flexible about maybe where they live or who they live with or how that's going to work. It's it's challenging. Yeah, it's a topsy-turvy world. And even though, as I say, we've, um, you know, still having to deal with COVID, there's still so many things which either directly in front of our eyes or, you know, or on the sidelines, which, you know, when they all get added together, it just become, you know, part of that big challenge for everybody. But as you say, especially if you're low income or you'll find yourself now in a situation where, where you're homeless. Final question to you, and thanks ever so much for your time as always. Where do you see this going? I mean, you know, are we going to see this fixed maybe in the next three or four years? Or are we looking like this is going to be more of a long-term thing that's, you know, this is going to have to take some real advocating towards the legislature to say, hey, this is a real big problem. You need to solve it. So the legislature is actually listening. I believe they are. I was at a hearing with them yesterday. And, you know, I know that people, many, many people were advocating for line item budget of, I think it was $50 million for the homeless response system. And our system, our system is actually a great system. Our homeless response system, which is, you know, overseen by um, DOH and then Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness is a huge part of it. Demas is a big part of it. They are doing amazingly great work. And I'm like very excited that we are a part of this work. This is very positive work. The system works. So it's just a matter of getting it funded properly so that we can pay our staff and have enough staff to do the work that we do. And I see that there's a big push nationwide to do some hard work in terms of ending homelessness. And everybody has big ideas about how that should go, uh, whether it's more affordable housing or whether it's raising wages or whether it's helping people with, you know, increasing things like mental illness support and recovery support and things like that. Those kinds of things, it takes all of that. You know, it's not just any one fix. So I'm excited to be a part of it and uh, looking at big initiatives that we can be doing to change uh, the trajectory uh, for some people of how their lives are going to go and, and helping people not be homeless for if they are for very long. Well, Avery Lenhart, Executive Director of Wyndham Region No Freeze Project, thanks for giving us an update. We'll come back to you, you know, in a year's time and, and see where it all goes from there. And no doubt, hopefully by then, the renovations will be complete or near completion and uh, we'll see what the situation is in a year's time. But in the meantime, thank you as always for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you, Brian. And in the interview, I mentioned Connecticut's minimum wage and said it's $15.50 an hour. That is incorrect. And it currently stands around $14 per hour, but will increase to $15 per hour in June of this year. Also recently, Governor Lamont announced historic investment in housing in the state when he addressed a joint session of the legislature about his 2024-2025 biennial budget proposals, with possible investment of $600 million in new housing for the state. But that could still face significant obstacles. What is dedication? My daughter started making necklaces. She makes what we call affirmation fashion. I tell her every day that your black is beautiful. And if there's anything better than being beautiful, it's being smart. 
And if there's anything better than being smart, it's being kind. And reaffirming that every day is our method of making sure her chin never drops. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Almost two weeks after details about a Connecticut college fundraising event that was to be held in Florida at a club known for racism and anti-Semitism, and students are still waiting to see how the school will move forward and calling for the president to resign. President of Kong College Catherine Bergeron cancelled the fundraising event at the 11th hour, which also saw the resignation of Dr Rodman King, the school's Dean of Institutional Equity and Inclusion, as a protest to the school's choice of venue. Katja Christensen is a student at the school and also a co-editor-in-chief of the official student newspaper The College Voice that broke the story and says it's just the tip of the iceberg of problems at the school. This wasn't just an isolated incident. This was just like the most recent event in a long series of just frustrations. And so, yeah, it's been, it's really just taken over our lives as students and as reporters here. We are trying to find the most credible information and report it as quickly and as accurately as we can. The school's board of trustees have emailed students and faculty promising to look into the matter and to undertake an independent review of the school's diversity, equity and inclusion commitments, but has so far provided no timeline as to when that will happen. Sam Maidenberg is also a student at the school and the other co-editor-in-chief of the official student newspaper and says the college's reputation with its diversity and inclusion staff isn't what it should be. In my time throughout four years at Khan. He's the third person to have come and go from this position. So there clearly is a disconnect between the higher administration and the DIEI office. And that position has just been on a constant revolving door and just plays on the broader issue. Meanwhile, a letter from King to the board has been circulating at the school, citing Bergeron as a bully and asking them to review her position with the college. Access Health Connecticut, the state's official health insurance marketplace, is searching for its next batch of brokers for its broker academy. James Michelle is the CEO of Access Health CT and said the program, which is now in its second year, was created after their research showed there was a need for qualified insurance professionals in areas of the state that have been historically underserved. We looked into our data, there were very limited, almost no black and brown brokers in the communities, in the urban communities across the state of Connecticut. So what the Broker Academy is seeking to do is to recruit individuals who live and work in those communities that are most impacted by health disparities as well as have the highest uninsured. The Broker Academy is free to any eligible community resident who must be at least 18 years old and live in Connecticut. And Michelle says they will even help applicants financially through the program. Each step requires investment of cash. For example, the state of Connecticut requires you to take their certified classes before you can take the licensing exam. That costs money. If you take and pass the exam, you have to pay for that as well. So that's two courses. The third course is if you pass the exam, then you have to apply to get the license and you got to pay another fee. So we have removed all those barriers for the people we've recruited from those communities so that they could become licensed brokers. If you're interested in applying for the program, broker information sessions are now on through March. Details can be found at accesshealthct.com 
forward slash broker hyphen academy. And a new art exhibition at Eastern Connecticut State University is hoping to break down barriers and stereotypes around Asian communities here in the U.S. Called Chinatown Chronicles, the exhibit takes its inspiration from the novel by Charles Yu called Interior Chinatown and the dissonance between the American dream and real-life experiences of immigrants. Terence Cheng is the president of Connecticut State Colleges and Universities and is a Chinese immigrant himself and says these are important conversations that just don't happen enough in society. Have the opportunities to have this kind of dialogue and this exchange of uh, knowledge, history and ideas. And so certainly this type of work I think makes inroads in protecting against and hopefully diffusing negativity towards Asians and others, but it continues to be out there. So I don't think the fight is going to be over anytime soon, but this is part of that work. Chinatown chronicles and runs until March 9th before heading to Wesleyan University and will be permanently available online at Easton's Art Gallery website. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 